Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk Featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders. All set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is a guided walk of the brutal murder of Elsie Mae Batten. A part-time shop assistant who would be murdered over the matter of just £15. And yet, how her culprit was caught would be a watershed moment in British policing which would change murder investigations forever. Murder Mile contains vivid descriptions, which may not be suitable for those of a sensitive disposition, as well as photos, videos and maps, which accompany this series, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 7 The Identikit Killing at the Old Curiosity Shop Today, I'm standing in Cecil Court, WC2. A long, dark, windy little cut-through connecting the busy city streets of St Martin's Lane and Charing Cross Road. It's situated smack bang in the middle of tourist hotspots like Leicester Square, Trafalgar Square and Covent Garden and is just one street away from the home of the Bedford Brewery baby batterer, a heart-wrenching case we discussed in episode 3. Although this alley is bookended by two of London's busiest roads, as long lines of cars stuck in traffic jams belch great plumes of polluted fumes, with horns tooting, engines revving, and the obligatory Cockney cab driver calling a dangerously weaving cyclist a cop. Cecil Court is in complete contrast to the city that surrounds it. It's very quiet, very clean, and it's very posh. Widely regarded as Booksellers Row, Cecil Court is a strangely thin, deceptively tall, and eerily long Victorian shopping arcade with a series of unnervingly similar bookshops on the ground floor, with matching mansion flats above, which loom over both sides, and is dotted with 19th-century gas lamps, almost as if electricity was never invented. Here, time has stood still, 
and the only people who seem to wander down this pedestrianised precinct are lost tourists looking for loos, the poor who peep in at unpriced prints, and the upper classes who shop for dusty books, tatty maps and arty lithographs, all of which they'll display but never read, in a desperate attempt to appear intellectual. And yet, it was here that two unlikely people would meet for the very first and the very last time. Elsie May Batten and her killer, Edwin Albert Bush. Today, 23-25 Cecil Court is the home of Goldsboro Books, an independent book dealer specialising in first editions and out-of-print rarities, all neatly displayed in high and wide windows and tall, elegant cases, with a facade painted in British racing green, the door protected by wrought iron gates, and ornate gold lettering above, which proudly displays its name and number. But back in the early 1960s, 23 and 25 Cecil Court were two entirely separate shops, with number 25 owned by Mr. E. Seligman, a purveyor of rare books and prints, and number 23 owned by Mr. Louis Meyer. It was a curiosity shop, which as its name would suggest, also sold a hodgepodge of quirky, curious and unusual items, such as African tribal masks, shrunken human heads and badly stuffed beavers as well as a wealth of medals, maps, stamps and antique military weapons such as spears, swords and knives. And although the curiosity shop at 23 Cecil Court was owned by Mr Louis Meyer and managed by Marie Gray, it would often be left in the capable hands of 59-year-old Elsie May Batten. Born Elsie May Thornilow, in Oadby, Leicestershire, in 1902, Elsie was one of three siblings with two younger brothers, all who worked for the family's wholesale textile business and lived the life of a well-to-do middle-class family, complete with a cook, a nurse and two domestic servants. But by 1933, Elsie had married the man of her dreams, a sculptor called Mark Winifred Batten, and had settled down in the very affluent area of Castletown Road in West Kensington. Although a deeply devoted couple who'd been married for 28 years, Mark's artistic career and reclusive temperament meant that during the week, as he chiselled away in his country studio at Christian's River in the wilds of East Sussex, Elsie was left alone at home with her young daughter, Griselda. But as Griselda grew up and moved out, Elsie needed something to occupy her time. And so being a big fan of art, antiques, and although she didn't need the money, Elsie started to work as a part-time assistant at Louis Meyer's curiosity shop at 23 Cecil Court, where eventually she would be found dead. Thursday the 2nd of March 1961 began like any other day. As with the ever-dependable Elsie, being entrusted to open the shop and arrange the window displays of assorted books, bits and bric-a-brac, 
She would also single-handedly manage the cash sales, inventory, and any queries by the light sprinkling of customers, until around lunchtime, when Louis and Marie would return from the local auctions. That afternoon, as they were close to shutting up shop, a scruffy young man, with beady little eyes, sticky out ears, and a tatty dark suit, shuffled in and began to browse the knives, swords, and daggers. Although the unkempt youth didn't look as if he had tuppence to his name, Louis Meyer engaged him politely about a piece that had caught his attention. But being unable to afford the fifteen-pound ornamental dress sword, the dishevelled young man shuffled out of the shop empty-handed. His name was Edwin Albert Bush. In contrast to Elsie's privileged life, Edwin Albert Arthur Bush, nicknamed Eddie, was born in 1940, as London was gripped in the midst of the Blitz. As German bombers pummeled the city with an eight-month campaign of air raids, and yet from this point on, his short, miserable life would only get harder, owing to Bush being a half-caste child born to a white British woman and an Asian father during a racially hostile period in 1940s Britain. So difficult was his upbringing that in 1953, when a concerned charity. Investigated the squalid living conditions of his family, with two adults and six emaciated siblings all squeezed into just two tiny rooms. Twelve-year-old Edwin Bush was taken into care and began a criminal career of burglary and theft, resulting in three stints in Borstal, a brutal juvenile prison. All before he was eighteen, and although his criminal record. Listed his occupation as a labourer, by the age of twenty, Bush was living in a squalid rented flat in the bombed-out slums of Honor Oak, South London. He was uneducated, unskilled, recently engaged, and he was broke. On Friday, the third of March, nineteen sixty-one, at a little after nine p.m., the ever-trustworthy Elsie arrived at twenty-three Cecil Court. She unlocked the door with the key she kept in her purse, and began to arrange the window displays, just as she had done many times before. As per usual, the curiosity shop was relatively quiet, as there wasn't much call for tribal masks, shrunken heads, or umbrella stands made from elephants' feet at that time of the morning. So whilst Louis and Marie were out at the auctions, Elsie went about her duties. Hoping for an occasional customer to break up the monotony. At eleven fifteen a.m., fifteen-year-old apprentice signwriter Peter Albert King was passing through Cecil Court when he spotted a second-hand billiard cue in the window display of Louis Meyer's curiosity shop. Although a timid young man, who was more adept at painting than talking, Peter tentatively walked into the shop. To inquire about its price, a small bell above the door announcing his presence. Inside, the shop was small, tight, and dark. Every shelf was stacked with dusty books, every wall was littered with portraits, and every drawer was stuffed full of trinkets, 
with a wealth of strange things either hanging from the ceiling, crammed into corners, or piled high on desks. And having only one window at the front of the shop, which was already chock full of stock, and illuminated by a small dim light, the tiny room was awash in an eerie mix of sickly yellow light from the tiny tungsten bulb which cast ominous dark shadows to the farthest parts of the shop. In the middle of it all stood Peter, alone. Hello? His tiny voice squeaked, wanting to be heard, but not wanting to be a bother to anyone either. But there was no reply. Hello? He uttered louder, lightly projecting his voice towards the long red velvet curtains which divided the back room from the shop. But as he ushered himself nearer, Peter peeped through a crack in the partially open curtains and slumped face down on the floor. He saw what he initially thought was a shop mannequin. Having started to shake and thinking that perhaps this was maybe a lady who had fainted, Peter dashed out of the shop. Almost an hour later, Louis Meyer discovered the body of Elsie May Batten. Owing to the usual clutter of the curiosity shop's back room, it was hard to tell if a struggle had taken place. As she lay splayed across the floor, a stack of newspapers under her body. But owing to the copious pools of blood, an arterial spray which had splattered the walls, the floor, and even speckled parts of the ceiling in a fine red mist, there was no denying the fact that Elsie was dead. Although unruffled, when pathologist Dr. Keith Simpson attended the scene, he noted that Elsie's clothes were pockmarked with a series of small slits, suggesting that she'd been stabbed multiple times with a razor-sharp dagger. So hard was she stabbed that the imprint of the handle had formed a dark bruise around each bloody wound as the full length of the blade had been buried deep into her body. Elsie had four critical injuries, either of which would have been sufficient to end her life. A deep stab to her back, which had ruptured her lungs. A second stab to her chest, which had pierced her heart, made using a white ivory-handled eight-inch dagger. And just above her shoulder, a brown-handled dagger was sticking out of her neck, its full nine-inch blade embedded into her flesh. And still, as if this sadistic level of violence wasn't enough either to subdue or even kill this small-framed 59-year-old lady, her murderer had bashed her over the head with a heavy stone vase, crushing her skull. At 8.35pm that evening, through a mix of tears and disbelief, her husband, Mark Batten, identified the bruised, bloodied and bludgeoned body of his beloved wife, Elsie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As a crime scene, it made very little sense. Although she'd been attacked with a shocking level of anger, Mild-mannered Elsie May Batten had no known enemies, no debts, and no criminal record. She hadn't been threatened, she wasn't sexually assaulted, and she hadn't been robbed. As her handbag wasn't stolen, the clasp was still shut, and inside was her purse. And although there was very little cash in the till, it was all still there. The only thing that had been taken was an ornamental dress sword. With her death having occurred just after rush hour, and most mornings in Cecil Court being unnaturally quiet, no one had witnessed the murder or the killer himself. Divisional Detective Inspector Frank Pollard, who headed up the murder investigation, knew very little about Elsie's assailant, based on the limited evidence before him. But what he did know was this. Based on the violence shown to Elsie, her attacker was young, strong and angry. Based on the way the knife had entered the body, her killer was not much taller than her. Based on the fingerprints found on the handles of both knives, this wasn't a premeditated attack, as any forward-thinking assassin would have worn gloves and would not have left the knives behind. And based on the partial bloody footprint her killer had left, the police knew a few vital details. That he was a man, with size 6 feet, who was roughly 5 foot 6 inches tall, and that, unless he'd destroyed that blood-soaked shoe, those very unique cuts and grooves which peppered the sole of his shoe would prove to be as identifiable as a fingerprint. But first, they would need to find him. When the daggers and the stone vase came back from the laboratory, owing to the thick blood stains which had congealed about them, 
only the brown-handled dagger had a decent enough fingerprint. And even though that wasn't enough to help find this maniac, as even if the police had teams of highly trained officers, working day and night, trawling through miles of paper files, with steady hands and well-trained eyes, it would still take weeks to identify the culprit. If he'd been fingerprinted at all. What they needed to do was to find the ornamental dress sword and the man who had taken it. Luckily, a change in police technology was taking place, which would prove invaluable in identifying her killer, as having previously relied on sketch artists to translate a witness testimony into a facial portrait, the results of which could vary wildly. D.S. Pollard decided to try out a new innovation called Identikit. Invented by Hugh C. MacDonald of the Los Angeles Police Department, Identikit used a standardized series of facial features, such as eyes, nose, ears, hair, chin and cheeks, which were imprinted onto interchangeable transparencies, so the witness could build an accurate facial likeness of the suspect. On Saturday the 4th of March, Detective Sergeant Raymond Dagg interviewed Louis Meyer and based on his testimony, compiled an identikit profile of the scruffy Indian youth who'd come into the curiosity shop and had admired the missing ornamental dress sword just two days before. And having heard from Paul Roberts, the son of a local gun dealer in nearby St. Martin's Lane, that a youth fitting that description had attempted to sell a similar-sounding sword that very same day, whilst in the company of a blonde female. D.S. Dagg compiled a second identikit and showed the results to D.S. Pollard. The results were remarkable. Two facial likenesses from two independent witnesses of what was clearly one man. Both identikits were issued to the press and printed side by side in the local newspapers in the hope that someone would recognise the man. And they did. Miss Janet Edna Wheeler of Floyd Road in Charlton, the 17-year-old blonde girlfriend of Edwin Albert Bush, spotted the two identikits in the paper. And reading that the police were looking for an Indian man and a blonde girl, she joked about how they fitted the description, unaware of her boyfriend's heinous and bloody crime. On Wednesday the 8th of March 1961, just five days after the brutal murder of Elsie May Batten, Edwin Bush and Janet Wheeler were out in London's West End, shopping for engagement rings. With his wallet flush with cash, Having recently sold an ornamental dress sword for £15, roughly £240 today, they walked hand in hand up Charing Cross Road, past Cecil Court, and turned left into Soho. On duty that day was Police Constable Arthur Cole of C Division at West End Central Police Station. With part of his beat being Old Compton Street, P.C. Cole patrolled his usual patch and spotted the strangely familiar sight of a couple browsing for rings in a pawn shop window. 
She was a 17-year-old blonde, and he was a 21-year-old Indian male, whose striking features exactly matched the identical image that he held in his hand. Edwin Bush was interviewed by D.S. Pollard that evening, and although he denied any involvement in the murder, his palm print was found on the brown-handled dagger. His fingerprints were found on the ornamental dress sword. The unique cuts and grooves which peppered the sole of his bloody footprint exactly matched the shoes that he was still wearing. And even though he had to agree that the identikit was a remarkable likeness to his own face, Bush was positively picked out in an ID parade by Paul Roberts, the son of the gun shop owner who Bush had attempted to sell the dress sword to and was charged with the unlawful murder of Elsie May Batten. And yet, oddly, Louis Meyer, the owner of the curiosity shop at 23 Cecil Court, whose own description had helped compile the identical image, which had ultimately captured the culprit, failed to spot Bush in a police lineup of just six men. Bush confessed that evening and made a full statement in which he stated, I went to the back of the shop and started to look through the daggers, telling her that I might want to buy one, but I picked one up and hit her in the back. Then I lost my nerve. I, I, I picked up a stone vase and hit her with it. I grabbed a knife and hit her once in the stomach and once in the neck. Later commenting that, I'm sorry I'd done it. I don't know what came over me. Speaking personally, the world is better off without me. Edwin Bush stood trial at the Central Criminal Court, known as the Old Bailey, on the 10th of May 1961, in a case which lasted just two days. And although he claimed that his attack on Elsie May Batten was motivated solely by her making unsavoury racial slurs as they haggled over the price, Bush was found guilty and sentenced to death. Edwin Albert Arthur Bush was executed at Pentonville Prison on the 6th of July 1961 by hangman Harry Allen, four years before the abolition of the UK death penalty. And yet, owing to an odd quirk in British law, Bush was not charged with murder, a sentence which carries a mandatory life sentence of 25 years, but under Section 5 of the 1957 Homicide Act, he was charged with murder in the course or furtherance of a theft, a crime which carried a death sentence. Meaning that, if he'd killed Elsie May Batten, but hadn't stolen the ornamental dress sword, he may still be alive today, having served his sentence. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you like it, please do share it with your friends. And if you love it, then please do rate us on either iTunes or any of your podcast providers. That would really be very much appreciated. And if you enjoyed this podcast, why not join us on a Murder Mile walk? It's my guided walk of Soho's most infamous murder cases, featuring 12 murderers across 15 locations, totaling 50 mysterious deaths, all in just one mile. 
Tickets are available via my website, murdermiletours.com. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is a two-parter. It's the brutal death of Ginger Ray. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.